Well, hello and welcome to this session of Adelaide Writers' Week. My name's Meredith Lake and we gather together today on Ghana land. We acknowledge that the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of this place, of the whole Adelaide Plain, and we pay respects to Elders past and present and future. We recognise and pay respect to Ghana cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge the continuing importance of those things and of the Ghana nation to this place and this community today. Now, some of you may have been expecting today to hear Wiradjuri stories. Uh, Wiradjuri thinkers in this session, uh, Stan Grant in conversation with Professor Anita Heiss. As some of you also may know though, that session hasn't been able to go ahead uh, Stan Grant wasn't able to be here in the end. But their books are available in the Writers' Week book tent, so you haven't completely missed out. You might like to have a browse at the end of this session. What we do have instead, though, is writer and reporter Elle Hardy, who's zooming in from the US. Hello, Elle. It's lovely to meet you. And we're hey here to discuss... We're here to discuss her latest book, it's a cracker, beyond belief, how Pentecostal Christianity is taking over the world. So we're going to be talking about a movement that is little over 100 years old, depending on how you narrate its history, of course, that now has an estimated following of 600 million people around the world, growing at a rate of perhaps 35,000 people every day, that is projected by 2050 to include a billion adherents. That will be one in 10 people on the face of the earth. From the lodge in Canberra to the US capital, from the campgrounds of Nigeria to the favelas of Brazil, this is a huge story and we are in for a wild ride. To keep you company, as I said, my name's Meredith Lake. If you recognise my voice, that's because one of, you're one of those good souls that listens to ABC Radio National. Um, I present Soul Search, and shouldn't we fund that, the, the national broadcaster? But I present Soul Search, which is one of the programs from the Religion and Ethics Unit that's really trying to get, get at the question, or the, the quest, really, for meaning from the inside out. That's kind of a very fascinating place to roam around in. Um, but I come to this topic, and even to that show, not as a theologian or as a religious studies expert, but with an academic background in, in Australian history, actually. And until leaping into broadcasting a couple of years ago, I spent most of my time writing, including a book with a trigger word in the title, and that trigger word was Bible. So it was, it was a cultural history of the Bible in Australia. And so... With that kind of backstory, I'm fascinated to meet you, Elle. Um, you're a reporter, you're a foreign correspondent, you've published very widely for, uh, for Lonely Planet, for Business Insider, for the ABC, of course, but you also have a very polarising term in the title of your book, Pentecostalism. And so I wonder how this project came about. I mean, you've said that you're, you were raised Catholic, but you don't count yourself a religious believer now. So why, you know, give your intellectual energy and curiosity to Pentecostalism for what must have been years of your life? Sure. So thanks again for having me. Um, 
It, it really came about entirely by accident. I was, uh, I've been largely based in the US for the last few years. And I wound up researching a story in Waco, Texas. And it was about a thing called John schools, uh, which are becoming quite prominent in Texas. They are reform schools for men um, caught soliciting prostitution, kind of like if you get done for a DUI in Australia and you've kind of got to go and, you know, watch a few videos and, and, and whatnot a few nights a week. Uh, but they're much more than that, as I came to discover, and I have a chapter on it in, in my book. And it, it was when I was down there, you know, this was the height of of MAGA America 2018. Uh, I was in very red part of America. And and this husband and wife who ran the school were happy to have me down and follow them around. But once I got there, they weren't so happy. And, and they were fairly hostile. And it sort of took me a few days of, of following them around and bugging them to work out why they'd let me there. And it was because they were inspired to start their school by an Australian woman, a Hillsong alumni called Christine Kane, who's a very big almost Pentecostal celebrity in, in the United States and on social media. And uh, they, they were really inspired by her. And it, it's almost as though they, they thought that a lot of Australians were like her or, or that I was inspired by her as well. Um, so, so that was kind of why they had me in, even though I, you know, raised a lot of their suspicions, you know, being from the media, being not exactly like them. Um, and, yeah, and I just became so fascinated by this movement, you know, started by this woman who grew up in Sydney like me that I'd never heard of, um, who was, you know, who started this huge um, anti-human trafficking, anti-sexual slavery movement around the world that is just massive. And, you know, we'd never heard of... No-one in Australia has really heard of her outside of the Pentecostal movement. And so, yeah, I just became a bit obsessed, as you do, and a bit fascinated and started reading some academic books. And then I followed her around America for a little while. And, uh, yeah, the more I read about it, the more I, I came to learn, which was that, yeah, yeah Pentecostalism, is, as you said, the facts and figures is the fastest growing religion on earth, uh, at least by conversions. And, you know, there's, there's some 600 million people around the world. And, and so, so, few, so few of us kind of secular um, liberal types really know about it. Um, and I'm just really really love telling big global stories, I suppose. I'm always looking for an excuse to hop on a plane and, and go to cool places like Nigeria. So, so yeah. yeah, it just became something of a, an obsession that I began seeing everywhere. And no one had, it's a lot of work's been done by academics and, and this, built, this book is really built on the back of so many great academics. Um, but nothing's really been done in, in popular um, uh, literature about it. So I tried to write a book that's kind of fun and engaging and, and just tells a story, which I think is is really interesting. It's not what it seems on the surface. It's no, very different all. to what I think people tend to tend to assume when it comes to Pentecostalism. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've, you've already mentioned kind of Red America. We've had references to Hillsong. You've already mentioned Nigeria as well. Um, and I think these are some of the associations that people often have first in their minds when they hear a term like Pentecostalism. And you do actually, in your book, take us further into Red America, as well as, you know, there's a discussion, obviously, of the Hillsong brand as well. But, Elle, you don't start your book with that kind of white, political, anglophone version of Pentecostalism. On page one, we're in Guatemala, and very quickly we're in the black neighbourhoods of LA, we're in Nigeria. Why is that? I mean, what do we miss if we think of Pentecostalism only through the lens of that kind of white, political, anglophone kind of style? 
we missed the lot. In, in Australia, I, th I think it's unfortunate that, that people see Scott Morrison and, and Brian Houston as representative of Pentecostalism. They are quite far from the median Pentecostal. I, I sort of never tire of saying that, that the median Pentecostal is a young woman in sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America. Um, she cares about her community and her family. Um, she's poor, uh, working, working class, probably has some young kids, and she's just trying to improve her lot. Um, improve a lot of her family and her community and and also speak to spiritual nourishment and that's really important you know we we think so much um, in in the west of religion as being a real declining force it, it's not you know it's, it's growing around the world with populations uh, it's in places like Nigeria and uh, and Brazil it is a given you know political people have to speak in in very spiritual terms um, to even get a seat at the table um, so, so it's it's just so different to our conception and and this really is a, a a religion of, of minorities, of marginalised, of, of working class people and of non-white people. I do want to discuss a bit later what happens when Pentecostal individuals or communities become more proximate, if you like, to political power in its more traditional forms. But before we get to that, I mean, you, you did go. You, you put your boots on like a lot of good writers and went to some of the kind of the demographic centres, if you like, of global Pentecostalism. And I wonder, you know, the borders have been closed for a long time. If you could kind of take us with you, in a sense, uh, to the campgrounds of Nigeria. I found this book, this chapter, absolutely riveting to read about. Um, it was only one of, I think, 12 countries that you went to, but, but take us there. What were the campground churches outside Lagos like? Happy to do so. So the um, Ibadan to Lagos Expressway is the busiest road in Nigeria. The population of Nigeria is about 250 million. It will be the third most populous nation in the world by 2050. The population of Lagos is around 20 million. And so millions of people are traveling this highway every day to get into work. You know, there's no, no public transport, terrible infrastructure. And in 1980, a, a, an enterprising Pentecostal pastor um, at, a, at a boyer uh, formed the redeemed Christian Church of God out, out on this highway because he was traveling that too. And he saw that nothing was speaking to people's spiritual needs out there. Um, you know, people are traveling hours a day each way to work in, in traffic. And, and this was a place that they could go to, to or from um, work and, you know, stop into church and pray and, and, and get something, get, get, you know, have something more to their lives than just going to work. And, and there are these huge campgrounds and they're, I say in the book that everything that the Vatican is not, and very proudly so. For example, at the Redeemed Christian Church's um, uh, headquarters called Redemption City out there, um, the small campground uh, is one kilometre by one kilometre. Um, so I think you can so, sorry, two one kilometre by one kilometre. And this is the small the one? small campground. Okay, so this yeah, is not so my traditional picture of church. No, no, no. And, and the large uh, one, which I didn't get to see because it was closed for COVID, um, could fit six Vaticans inside of it. So it's three wow. kilometres by three kilometres. It would take you, you know, hours to walk the perimeter. They're sort of like airport hangars. They have these huge corrugated iron roofs, you know, no walls. They're just, just pews. It's, it's very austere. Um, and, and it's really bubbling with the miraculous. It's about making the most of what you have in there. So it's, it's very raucous. There's lots of music. It's authentic, it's Nigerian, it's African, it's working class, it looks and feels like a local culture. 
And this is something that has become really important to Pentecostalism's story of its rise. Um, in Brazil, has a, there's a scarily similar origin story of how Pentecostalism really took off there in the 80s as well. And it really contrasts with Catholicism. You know, Catholicism is the colonizer's religion. Um, it's, you know, your, your priest is probably very white, whereas your Pentecostal preacher grew up in the favelas with you. He's mixed race like you. He speaks the same dialect as you. You know, he wasn't educated in Spain like your priest was. And this has become something that's really, really important to people. Um, but, yeah, out, out in Redemption City, it's, it, it is a city. There is... A, kind of cookie cutter housing out there that's quite wealthy. There's paved roads, which is um, paved sidewalks and roads, which aren't terribly common, more functioning ATMs than, than in the ritziest part of Lagos. Um, there's hospitals and basic healthcare, which again, most people in Lagos just can't access. So it's almost a, a para, parallel state within a state. And, and again, this is something that, that we're really seeing replicating over and over, particularly in South Africa is, people kind of saying the state doesn't give us anything, neoliberal economics isn't giving us anything, we're creating our own little place of, you know, the world where we all help each other out, tithing becomes like taxes. Um, but, but, yeah, it's this, and it's also just such a huge part of people's lives. It's not even just political. I mean, when you're going down that expressway for several hours each way per day, you can't meet a husband or a wife. So they run speed dating services out there. <laughs> um, there is just so much, there is so much going on there. There's, it's very hard to get numbers, but, but there's probably at least hundreds of thousands of people that could fit out there at a time. Um, there have been reports of potentially sort of an annual meeting at these kind of campgrounds where there's millions of people, uh, but, but often people will, you know, go to their more local church, so this would just be an annual thing. And, and in time along this highway, all other, all sorts of other churches popped up, um, Pentecostal, uh, and are doing the same things. And, and so mm. it's seen as a, a very spiritual place now, very separate to Lagos, which is seen as corrupt. You know, it's the hub of oil and banking and, and all those sorts of things. And, you know, in time, um, it's probably something we'll go into more, Pentecostals are very good at um, embracing ideas of competition and, yeah. and disruption. Um, and in time, they've found a, a very um, worthy competitor uh, that's come out to meet them, which is a mosque. Nasfat. Um, I mean, that, that's and- a very fascinating theme that you <laughs> raise, like that, that what you're describing is a kind of almost a counter-society, an alternative world that's quite encompassing I mean, you've mentioned the ATMs, the, the childcare, the health clinic, the pews, of course. And, and what, what you're kind of opening up in this book, um, as, as have scholars of Pentecostalism in Nigeria, is a kind of world that where, where kind of their faith is not just like a bit part of, of the rest of their existence, but something all-encompassing in a social, cultural and spiritual, even political sense, that the tithe is kind of like your tax. You pay it to prop up a world that maybe works a bit for you. I mean, how do you... I guess I'm, I'm curious about what that means for the place of belief in all of that. I mean, your book's called Beyond Belief, but, but what kind of things did you see being preached to the people who did show up in those pews? And how important do you think some kind of doctrine, if you like, was to the appeal of this community for people? 
Yeah, in terms of what's being preached, uh, Pentecostals are really keenly aware, as I mentioned, of competition, that they're operating in a marketplace of ideas. And religion's just another one of those ideas, really. They've taken on a lot of stuff that you'll hear in Silicon Valley. You know, as I've said to people, um, they're more likely to read an autobiography of Elon Musk than they are, you know, to read the works of Luther. Uh, and this is quite deliberate. So, um, so, so for one thing, you won't get the same thing preached because... Um, people are going to different preachers. They, if you don't like what someone's preaching, you go down the road and you g get into someone else. So, so they'll all have particular things. Um, Nigerian Pentecostalism can be pretty fire and brimstone. Um, it's very focused on health and wealth, which are probably the two key drivers um, to, to people, uh, to Pentecostalism of people. So it's it's healthcare, whether by way of miracle or, um, or just by, like I said, having those kind of power state where you just have a little medical clinic the state's not giving you that, at least your church is, um, and, and wealth um, through prosperity gospel, but also some semblance of a community where people kind of get by and, and look after each other. So, so that, that, is, that is a really important thing that, that we're seeing out there. Um, and so what was the second part of your question? Well, I guess, I guess when we've come to an idea of Pentecostalism, Pentecostalism via, you know, Australian politics or perhaps the spectre of the American right, I think, and people who've grown up in a very post-Protestant society, like arguably Australia is, I think it's very easy to privilege belief. Like, we want to know, okay, what's the content of belief here? Give me the top five points of theology that glues this thing together. But what I really appreciated about your book was that there, there is a discussion of that, right? But you're, you're resisting the move to just put it in a belief box. And so I guess I'm asking you to just tease out where, where does belief fit in this and what are their distinctive beliefs, but how important is those, are those distinctives? Sure. So if there's one overarching belief, it is the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and it's almost like it was the, you know, the, the one part of the Trinity that hadn't really been, been used so much yet. You know, it's sort of right for disruption. Again, that kind of the Silicon third Valley wheel. idea. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. Father, um, son and the other so, guy. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in short, uh, a Pentecostal will be uh, born again, so usually full immersion baptism, and then they'll be born again in the Holy Spirit. So they'll be filled with the Spirit and, and given the nine gifts that are told in the Bible. Um, so it's uh, prophecy, healing, divination uh, and, and a few other things, and most notably tongues, the idea of speaking in tongues. And that's because obviously you're you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's become, it's why I really emphasize the modernness of the faith, because it is such a, it really speaks to the here and now and to, you know, very modern ideas about individualism and things like that. So, you know, if you think of an old school Christian, you're, um, you speak to God through prayer. But why, why do you want that when you can have God speak through you directly through with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> because that is ultimately um, what Pentecostal belief is. And, and that is both incredibly empowering um, to people and, and really, really inspiring. And, and I think it's a huge part of, of why we're seeing this mass conversion. And also, you know, in the wrong hands, it can be, can be kind of dangerous. Um, as I've mentioned, you know, we've, we've seen it. Um, part of the reason the book is called Beyond Belief is because there is such a heavily... Um, social and political element to this faith um, that I think is is almost as important as the belief itself. As someone in Brazil said to me, you know, Catholics tell you that you can have it all in the next life. Pentecostals say that you can have it all in this one too. 
and that's you know that's really what is what is really helping to to drive people and and then you know for for the political element it's really helping um what we're seeing much of the the new populist right it, it's forming a theological wing and it's helping to prop it up and it's really allowing populist politicians to define things in spiritual terms um nowhere more so than nigeria it's uh Politicians will speak daily about spiritual warfare and their political rivals being demons and, and things like that. So it's it's really finding its way into into so much of our world. It's very hard just to pin down as you know something that that you go to church on Sunday and believe this. It, it's a very all encompassing faith. I think that question and the language of kind of spiritual warfare, just just the way I see it that that's become, I mean, in a way, it's New Testament language. It goes back to the, the founding documents, if you like, of Christianity across the board. And yet, kind of more recent interpretations and deployments, if you like, of that language those, and the kind of conceptual architecture around that is something we're seeing a rise in that perhaps wasn't prominent so much at the very beginning of the Pentecostal movement, at least in the, the narrative that you tell in your book, L. And I wonder if you could kind of take us to that. I mean, there's a very potent origin story for Pentecostalism that's become, like it's almost like the founding mythology these days of modern Pentecostalism. I wonder if you could tell us a bit of that story because there are some characters there who, again, unsettle some of the, the neat stereotypes you might have about Pentecostalism today and yet help explain what we're looking at in the world now. So could you take us to Azusa Street and to the son of freed Louisiana slaves who was so instrumental in the beginning of this movement? Sure, it's fascinating. And I decided to tell the, the early story. I picked out three characters because as this faith was being shaped, it was really each person was kind of taking it and moulding it and almost handing it on to the next person. And, and there were more than three founding figures, but I, I picked the three who I think are the most important and just really fascinating people. I, I love just being able to read this history and write about it. Um, so, so the person who is considered the founder of Pentecostalism is a man called William J. Seymour. He was the son of freed slaves from Louisiana, um, about an hour or so from where I am now. Um, and he was very different to, to your modern Pentecostals. He was very austere man, very, very serious. And he led a movement in 1906 uh, that had begun with his uh, mentor, you might say, Charles Fox Parham, who was an itinerant Methodist preacher who began preaching some new strains that were coming through Methodism and, and just American evangelicism, particularly after the Civil War. And Charles Fox Parham um, was really interested in health and healing. Uh, he and his son, young son were quite sick and was really focused on bringing the Holy Spirit to people to, um, to heal them. And he had an all-night prayer and fasting vigil on January 1st, 1901. And the Spirit descended on his little congregation and a woman started speaking in tongues. Her name was Agnes Osman. And uh, yeah, she thought she was speaking Chinese. Uh, a couple of days later, it hits Charles Fox Parham. He thinks he's speaking Swedish. Um, and, you know, they were mocked and ridiculed in the local papers called the Tower of Babel. And, you know, they thought that they were some sort of weird fringe sect. But Parham really, he was a true believer. Um, he was also a massive prick, as we might get into later on. But he was very much of his time as well. And so he started traveling around and, and he went up in Houston 
preaching. And this is where this young son of, uh, of freed slaves who'd been traveling around America, lost an eye to smallpox working in a factory in Indiana and thought that um, this was a sign from God that he'd, he'd been um, tarrying in, in terms of, of becoming a preacher. And so that, so William J. Seymour was, was one of Charles Fox Parham's students, but obviously Charles Fox Parham being a white man and then being in Houston and, and William J. Seymour being black. Jim Crow laws at the time meant that they couldn't be in the same room to be learning together. So William J. Seymour took his uh, tutelage out in the corridor. And then they used to go out preaching in Texas together on weekends and Fox Parham would preach to the white people and William J. Seymour would preach to the black people. And then after a couple of years, Seymour was, was invited up to a church in Los Angeles and he tried to bring these ideas that he'd learned and, uh, and churches, you know, locked him out. They thought he was mad. But he had a small band of followers and he was, by all accounts, a, just a, a really lovely man, a really good preacher and, and very captivating. He was very, very earnest. And they had, you know, days and days of prayers and fasting and the spirit descended on the congregation again and people started speaking in tongues, rolling around on the floor, things that early Pentecostals were, were very famous for. And the LA papers picked this up and started printing really sensational accounts. Uh, and the day that they picked it up was also the same day that they reported on the San Francisco earthquake. And to a lot of people at the time who were, you know, very pre-millennial, so who thought that there was going to be some big event like yeah, an earthquake. Yeah, the end is nigh, Elle. We had, we had an earthquake here this morning. I'm not sure you know. <laughs> I was too I engrossed in your book to notice. But um, <laughs> sorry. But, it's, but the end was nigh for these people. Yeah. And, and just the, that, that real freak confluence of those two events happening at the same time just drew so many people to William J. Seymour's congregation. And it's fascinating that he is considered the founder of Pentecostalism when I actually think that his mentor probably has more of a claim. But, you know, this and this is the story of Pentecostalism, that, a you know, a, a black man in Jim Crow America uh, was considered the founder and, and his congregation was known as um, the Azusa Street Revival. And from there, it just took off across America and across the world. You know, there were a lot of people who uh, were speaking in tongues. And, and one thing about Pentecostalism, from the beginning to now, people are very true believers. Um, it's sometimes hard to emphasise how much, you know, it might sound a bit crazy now, but people genuinely thought this and they thought it was the end of days. And they took off on boats to China thinking they were speaking Chinese. And a lot of them died from horrible illnesses like dysentery before they even got, got to the mainland. And one of those people was the first husband of the third part of our uh, unholy trinity of, of, of Pentecostals, Amy Semple McPherson. Well, and as, yeah. as you'll notice, she, she's a woman. From the beginning, Pentecostals allowed different races to preach side by side and to each other and, and women to preach as well. That's always very much been a part of the story. And, hmm. and Amy and her young husband, yeah, went off to China and, and her husband died in, in Hong Kong of dysentery and, and she came back to America. And she really polished it up. She was uh, sort of a, a proto-televangelist. Yeah, she might have been the first woman in the world to have her own radio show. Um, it's, it's interesting she was, you say, because, I mean, just as the papers in LA um, and in San Francisco kind of, sen you know, published these sensational reports of what was going on in these churches, the media, I mean, I'm fascinated by this relationship to the media because now you might say that kind of a certain kind of media savvy is one of the absolute hallmarks of kind of, well, say, the global Hillsong brand or any of its equivalents around the world. And, and it was probably, though, Amy Semple McPherson, who was one of the first to really 
understand and utilise the power of the popular media to, to really present this new idea um, and its new temper to a wider public. So, so tell me about her, because she, she is... I mean, I, I don't know how you could describe her, so I'm interested to hear. She, didn't, she does not fit in any box. No, not not at all. Her whole life is is, is fascinating. You know, I say that her um, she was sort of the daughter of a Salvation Army stage mum. She sort of had that. The mother was pushing her to the front of, of the church choir her entire life, and she had a very fraught relationship with her mother um, th throughout her life. Uh, but but yeah, so so she she polished it up. She realised that she had this gift to take it to the masses and. Uh, contemporary accounts say that she had this incredible sense for, for a waning audience, that she just knew how to, to you know, bring them back. And, and, and again, because Pentecostalism has always been about, you know, stomping, whooping. whooping. Uh, I have a chapter on, you, you know, Pentecostalism, I say is, you know, is you know, rock and roll is secular Pentecostalism. Everyone big that started in rock and roll came through Pentecostal churches. And so it was that ability, you know, that if, yeah, if you sense an audience waning, you could jump in, you know, spontaneously into song or dance or cheering. And, and it's always just had that ability to, to you know, do what's what's coming through you. And she had that 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 real ability. But also she she saw early on that, that the people rolling around on the ground and, and, and babbling in tongues uh, might have turned a lot of other people off. So she kind of put them out inside tents and then she just had... A, a bit more of the, the polished up stuff inside. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, she also really took, took to radio, um, really just had that great Pentecostal thing, which is to this day, and, and it flows right through, you know, the last century of Pentecostalism. They've always been the first to adopt new media. It's really eerie. Um, the first televangelists were Pentecostal. Uh, the prosperity uh, theologists uh, all came from Pentecostalism. All of the, you know very uh, talented YouTube preachers and social media users, Hillsong music, they, anyone who adopts new media just seems to be Pentecostal. It's, it's quite bizarre. Um, as, as someone once said of, of Hillsong, um, they don't just move the needle, they thread it. And there's just always been that, that incredible sense of, you know, maybe it's the, the ghost of, of the zeitgeist and where things are going. But um, yeah, so Semple McPherson wound up being also a really important political figure. And, and then had a quite a spectacular fall from grace as the great proto-televangelist that she was. So um, was kidnapped well. by Mexicans. <laughs> they said kidnapped. <laughs> um, but she was also apparently seen fleeing up the coast with her lover. And, uh, yeah, and, and eventually came back, had to rebuild her reputation, had a trial. They could never prove exactly what happened. And then quite tragically uh, went around Europe, uh, saw speeches by Hitler and Mussolini, was a very early critic of both fascism and communism, met Gandhi, uh, came back to America, sort of was doing speakeasy tours um, of, of her, her sort of political religious message, and then quite tragically died of a barbiturate overdose in 1947, I believe. That... <laughs> what, what you're kind of... Even in, in one extraordinary life, I don't know, reading your book, hearing that story... I'm struggling to get a grip on what is this incredibly agile, diverse movement that's obviously corrosive to the existing institutions and assumptions of its time. That the, there's an incredible kind of creativity um, that runs in an uncontrolled, like it's in all kinds of directions that, that, we're, that we're thinking about here. And I guess that 
kind of unpredictability, um, that that diversity is part of what makes it so hard to 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 kind of sum up Pentecostalism. I've wondered, reading your book, if we need to be talking about Pentecostalisms, because I mean, we, we, you just described an early critic of fascism, but we started our conversation talking about, you know, we were in Waco, Texas, um, you know, where you could argue, you know, certain forms of politics, you know, might, might not be so critical of that. And I just, I just, I guess, want to talk about the political expressions of Pentecostalism that you write about in the book. Because one of the more recent megachurches, you know, leaving, leaving Azusa Street behind, that you describe in your book is Bethel Church in Reading. I'm not sure what US state we're in at this part of your story. But this is a church, a megachurch, that includes something like one in eight residents of its town that has huge aspirations to reshape that town and eventually the American nation. And I wonder if you could just talk to us about that and the kind of the theology, the political theology that you see coming out of that church in the last, well, the last several decades really, since the 80s. Sure. So I guess just to answer your, your first kind of query, because I know it can be confusing because I'm telling quite spectacular stories um, to to really explain the, the really spectacular growth and rise of Pentecostalism. So, so what really defines it and sets it apart and, and makes it meaningful to people is that direct personal experience with God yep. through the Holy Spirit. So that's probably the, the, the thing to hold on to. So um, in terms of Bethel Church, it's, um, it, it's, it's kind of a hardcore hillsong in, in Northern California. So uh, north of, of San Francisco, it's in that Pacific Northwest where there's an incredible amount of conflict. We see now in places like Portland, there is that sort of very liberal city element of people and there's very rural um, culture out there and very working on the land in terms of logging and things like that. So there's already a huge amount of... Um, of kind of political and social conflict going on. But yeah, Bethel's, uh, Bethel's a mega church with, within this third wave. And, and it's, it, it's a fascinating place. You know, this is, uh, they get into much more fire and brimstone kind of theology for sure, but they also have gold dust coming down from the ceiling and feathers that they, they say is, you know, just these magical gifts from God that they haven't planted in there. <laughs> Um, but, but it does have a huge effect on, on the wider town. There's, there's a huge um, uh, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministries that's there. Sorry. Um, so you have the, students. The Bethel are... School of Supernatural Ministry. Right. Yes. Got it? Sorry. Keep going. Um, so you have, yeah, you have students running around town trying to heal people and put their hands on you, and that's a bit of a problem in town for the people who don't believe. Um, but they're also the, the pastor of this church, um, is, is one of the, what I'd say, sort of founders of, of a very troubling political doctrine that I talk about a lot in the book called the Seven Mountain Mandate, which is becoming quite influential in uh, very theologically minded elements of the Republican Party. Uh, we saw people directly inspired by this that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Um, I get asked this question in Australia a lot. I don't think that Scott Morrison or, or Hillsong adhere to it at all. You know, there's, there's very... There was one speaker once that mentioned it at the Hillsong Conference in Australia, as far as I can see. So I think this is quite unique to America and to the American moment. You know, it's it's the it, it's for a Republican Party and a radical right wing that know that they've lost the Democratic battle and the demographic battle. So it's repackaged Christian dominionism. 
it says that there are seven mountains or spheres of society. So it's business, government, healthcare, media, entertainment, and there's always one that I forget, uh, and military. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, media and the arts is, is one of them. And and education is the really big one. So, so when you're seeing people storming school boards and things like that at the moment in America and burning books, often very, very Seven Mountains inspired. Um, and they say that, you know, these have been overtaken by demonic elements and that it's the believer the believer's job is to re, reclaim them or reconquer those mountains. Um, one of the, the other founders of Seven Mountains Mandate, Lance Wallnow, says there's no such thing as secular employment for the believer. So it's really encouraging people to do whatever they can to take back America for God. It really is just Chris, pretty straight up repackaged Christian dominionism. Yeah. Um, so, so it is the kind of thing that, that does get, um, you know, Republicans and, and the radical right in America are very good at, at small stuff, at building up, you know, uh, Democrats um, always want to be Obama. They always want to give the big speech kind of thing. Republicans are very good at, um, and, and people on the religious, you know, evangelical religious right, which we associate with the Republican Party, are very good at, yeah, just storming the school boards and, you know, just putting up enough people for election. And so this is something that's really come out of Bethel, even though they're not so keen to align themselves with it now because they've got a big music arm and they're meant to be a bit more... Hmm. I mean, you, you, know, mentioned in your book, you mentioned in your book, Elle, that Bethel itself, the church that in many ways nurtured this theology, or at least from which some of the key proponents and developers of this, I'd never heard of it, the Seven Mountain Mandate kind of came from, um, that that church even split over disagreements over this, um, this kind of political theology, as you put it that split over the role of the supernatural. So there's there's kind of an internal debate, it seems to me, within churches that might be hospitable in some way to it. Even, even there, there's internal debate. But, but you describe the way these ideas, well, you could say they really punch above their weight in terms of the impact that they have. I mean, you were in Reading on the day of the insurrection at the Capitol. How did you read the room? Like, and what, what were people there making of, of the event and of what this particular American form of Pentecostalism had to do with it? Sure. I mean, so look, at the time, like everyone else, I was just glued to my TV, just, just in, in disbelief that it was happening. And I think a lot of people up there were as well. But, but Reading is a, is a strange place. It is... Uh, I mean, this is just my personal sense, but it felt like the most hostile place I went to in America. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in some pretty rough places in, yep. you know, where people don't want me around. Um, but, but, yeah, Bethel just had a, a real hostility to, to outsiders. It's, it's a town that, you know, I, I say it's a company town um, for, for this church. It's um, emergency ward doctors. They recruited from Pentecostal conferences. They, they really want to turn this place into a, an almost a Pentecostal 
heaven on earth. <laughs> and, um, and so they are very politically charged. And there's some stuff that I unfortunately wasn't able to publish in the book that was difficult to verify about certain people's involvement with um, some not so nice groups. Uh, but I, I like my money and my freedom, so I don't want to, I don't want to get sued. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I can't say too much. Um, but yeah, there, there are definitely some, some very hard edges coming out from, from some people in this church and, and many other churches. Um, and yeah, on the day of January 6th, I was, you know, watching like everyone else was as these people were storming and just kind of going, hang on, some of these guys are carrying Bibles, you know. Um, so went down a, um, a bit of a rabbit hole looking into some of these characters and some other really great journalists did as well. And there were definitely people directly inspired uh, by, by some of not not the preacher Bill Johnson from, from Bethel who helped write the book but is now trying to distance himself a little from it um, but a lot of the the online preachers and his co-author Lance Wellnow is, is definitely one of those who's very involved with the Republican Party is you know and Donald Trump was one of the people who's going to lay hands on him in the White House and whatnot um, they, they were preaching this stuff nightly on on Facebook in the pandemic I watched it um, it, it was quite chilling um, and you know I think that that lockdown had a real effect on people as well, that, that maybe people were getting some pretty wild ideas through Facebook and you're maybe not going to your church and discussing them with people on Sunday and then, you know, someone is saying to you, hang on, like, just a bit of the sanity check here, this stuff's a bit insane or this this stuff's a bit dangerous. Um, so, so I think that that Facebook element had a really huge, um, really huge involvement. But, yeah, as for the day in the town, I didn't... Um, uh, really speak to anyone that directly who was, you know, knew much about it or was particularly interested, but I was in the graveyard uh, looking for another very famous practice of uh, the Bethel Church, which is grave soaking, which is another thing that they deny but also promote, <laughs> which is rolling around on graves to suck up the anointing of, of someone. So it might be a famous prophet that's died or someone that, that you loved. Uh, Bethel quite famously tried to raise from the dead a young girl who of a member of the choir who died a few years ago. You can you can look it up online. Um, and so, yeah, I was going and hanging out in the graveyard uh, most days to see if I could find anyone. And I actually wound up talking to um, to one of the groundskeepers there uh, on the day of, of January 6th. And I said, you know, do you ever see, have you seen anyone doing this? Can, can you kind of give me a yell if you see anyone? He said, oh, I've seen them doing it, but not for a while. And, and then he said, but, you know, it's not in here that I'd be worrying about them. Now, Elle, there's a lot we could pick up. There's a whole book, if you're interested, available in the book tent over there for the details of these stories. You're, in a way, just beginning to tell us in this hour. I guess, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the pastors who gathered around Trump to, to pray, and I don't know if other people, you know, pay attention to this stuff on the internet, but I do. And Brian Houston, famous for his, uh, as the, the global pastor of Hillsong, was in that photograph. And I wonder, like, you've, you've taken this global look at Pentecostalism or Pentecostalisms around the world right now. Have you got a sense of whether there is an Australian temper or um, mode of this that we see with Hillsong? Or where does, where does the Hillsong brand and network fit in this picture that you're drawing? I mean, you've already said that, you know, that's an American thing and it's different in Nigeria, but where would you locate an Australian Pentecostalism? I know that's a huge question, but you must have a feel for that, having taken such a big view. Yeah, so Hillsong and, and 
C3, which is another huge Hillsong-like uh, Pentecostal brand globally, I think they've got 500 churches or something, um, is very interesting. So it's churches that go into really big cities, number one. Um, so, and, you know, in big cities you tend to maybe not be able to push such extreme ideas and, and part of it, you know, being really popular in, we're talking Sao Paulo, Cape Town, Los Angeles, New York, Moscow and Kiev, there are quite big Hillsong branches, so they, they might not be open at the moment. Um, and so it tends to be a, a kind of friendlier kind of Pentecostalism. And, and I think uh, particularly in, in very Pentecostal countries like South Africa and America, people will tend to go there for the lighter stuff. They might not want the fire and brimstone. So you might have grown up in a small town in Texas, you moved to Los Angeles for work, and you kind of had those, those end of days preachers where you were back home. You just want the music. You want to feel good about your faith, which is something that Pentecostals and Hillsong do really well. They, they have really good music. They say that you can, you know, live a Christian life in a secular world. You don't have to feel bad about your faith. It can be uplifting. It can be hip-hop. You know, it's um, so, so it really gives people it really gives people that. And I think part of Hillsong's success in America is that it is uh, the Australianness is a bit exotic, but it's also moving away from traditional American even evangelicism. It's saying, you know, you don't have your red faced Jerry Falwell screaming at you about abortion. You have a nice, friendly face um, and, and good music. And I think that that is. <clears throat> part of me, very important to, to Hillsong's rise. Um, for example, uh, Carl Lentz, who's the famous Hillsong preacher, Justin Bieber's preacher, he's best known as, who had the quite spectacular fall from grace last year. Uh, he was a preacher in New York. He went on the, the, the sort of female TV talk show, The View, and he refused to condemn abortion because Hillsong doesn't do that. You know, other American churches do that and they they're very keenly aware of who their audience is and that they don't want them turned off. And so I think that there is, and, and it comes as quite a surprise to I think a lot of Australians, but Hillsong is, is probably one of the most theologically lightweight of the Pentecostal churches, certainly the big ones. And, and that is very much part of the appeal. I'm conscious of the clock, Elle, and that in an audience of this size, I'm not sure if you can see us, but there's a lot of people here who I'm sure have lots of questions. Um, you might be one of the one or two lucky people to ask yours if you head to the mic now. But, I mean, that you, you mentioned um, audience, which is a telling term, I think, rather than, say, congregation or, you know, members of a movement. But the youthfulness of the typical Pentecostal, whether that's in Australia or in New York or in, you know, Lagos or wherever you might be, is something that I think means um, whether you know, whatever our relationship to this movement might be, however near or far we place ourselves with it, it's likely, or it, well, it already is, shaping the world that we live in and will continue to shape into the future. I wonder what your, you know, having spent years with this material, um, what your sense is of where this might go? I mean, when, when most adherents are, you know, they're under 25, they're, glo they're, they're mobile people, um, they're part of a kind of a glo global cities, global networks, a global economy. What do you think this is going to mean for how we think about, you know, secular society from here on? That's, that is a very good question <laughs> to which I don't know the answer. Um, perhaps if I could answer what I think it might mean for the faith itself. I'd um, love to know. 
is that because <laughs> I, I get asked a lot because obviously so much you know we, we said 35,000 people a day converting and, and things like that it's it's obviously going to reach a point where it has to start slowing down um, it may have already uh, what I think is is really interesting is that so many people are, are born again into this faith what's going to happen in a generation or two when people just grow up in the faith um, you know that they they mightn't have that really powerful experience because there's another very strong narrative of Pentecostalism that of how important that born again moment is, that it's a clear demarcation of life before and after. And so I think that the, the real challenge will be that, yeah, when you have your, your people that are just born into it and maybe their mom was just born into it as well and it was grandma who converted all those years ago, is, is how much it's really going to be so arresting for people in the future. And then also just the we're seeing some really interesting deviations with, with Pentecostalism now into you know, the, the kind of conspirituality movement, the, there's QAnon-type churches that are very Pentecostal-based. So so is it just going to completely devolve away from something that, that yeah. looks like organised religion in, in the way that Pentecostalism originally did from, from what we would think of as organised religion itself? So I think they're the big questions. As for how it operates in a secular society, um, I think it's too big a question to answer broadly. It's just, it depends on, on the country. It depends on the look and feel. Mm. Some places it might have such an effect. Others, particularly places like Nigeria, Brazil, United States that are very religious, have very religious cultures. Uh, I, I think it will certainly continue to be a force and, and quite a powerful one. We might have to, to watch this space. We do have a lot of questions um, and I'm keen to hear, hear those before we completely run out of time. The gentleman at the microphone, ask away. Uh, you, you mentioned a few times uh, it was the working class, particularly in Nigeria, uh, who were getting caught up in Pentecostalism. So do you see this as a phenomenon of the, the poor uh, if you like, the working class globally. Uh, and in regard to global warming, could you say a few words about how that sits with the world of Pentecostalism? Sure. So, so yeah, it's very much a working class religion. In, um, in, in Brazil, it's really come out of the favelas and, and everywhere you go, it's, uh, that, that's a huge part of the story. So working class, marginalised, minority, um, it, that, that, that's very much a part of it. And certainly in terms of global warming, um, that's something that, that, that comes up a lot. Um, Pentecostalism is, in its nature, definitely more right-wing and populist. Um, it, it, it aligns really well with those movements coming around. And, and there is a real sense among Pentecostals in, in huge swathes of the world that that their faith is is anti-elite and that they feel very besieged by the secular world around them. Um, global warming is a part of that. You know, you've got experts telling you this and that, but, um, you know, your faith and your politics is what you feel. Um, gay, gay marriage tends to be the big issue that, that people really highlight, um, especially in, in large parts of the global south. Um, they really think that the West has lost its way with, with gay marriage, and that's, and that's a big thing. But, but certainly um, global warming is something that uh, comes up that, that is often felt to be against um, people's faith. And, and, you know, after all, um, I, we haven't really talked about it today, but I do certainly get into it. Pentecostals are definitely end times guys. They, they really believe that there is um, 
what I would say is almost an obsession with the state of Israel um, and and preparing it for, you know, that that it's being prepared for the, for the end times. So certainly, if you believe that the end times are imminent and you've got to work, you know, you've got to do everything um, ahead of, of Christ's return, what's a few parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere? At, at the same time, El, there is an internal conversation that I'm aware of, like that because we're talking about 600 million people that vary so much, and maybe it is a minority, but there is also an internal movement to try and theologically catch up with the questions of the times like climate change, like gay marriage. And it, 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 that complexity, I think, is worth keeping an eye on as well. Because who, with the yeah. youthfulness, like so many young people, you know, might take a different view to older, you know, religious elites on these questions. I, I'm not sure very what we are going to see. Yeah, I very much so. I don't think you, you'll see uh, Hillsong talking about it because they know the congregation's young, diverse, very active kind of people. Um, but but at the same time, um, again, with those working class origins, you're... you're you might see in other parts of the world people saying, well, you know, hang on, does this mean they're going to shut the factory? Because half my congregation goes there. Um, so, so it is inextricably tied up with, with so many other things. So it is very hard to come up with a definitive view and, and obviously a lot of stuff comes out of America. So, yeah, it's incredibly complex and trying to speak to 600 million people is, <laughs> is just impossible. Well, you've, you've had a, a, a question here, another question. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and this relates to a couple of things on which you've sort of touched. Um, we're having an election here any day now, um, both at the state and territory levels and at the Commonwealth federal level. And some of the people who are running for office and assert to be leaders in office are very involved in the Pentecostal church and others who are only tangentially involved make sure that they go and visit the Pentecostal churches and um, are there to be seen. Um, what do you see as the positive and negative role of Pentecostalism in politics and the role of the politicians in Pentecostalism? Sure. So, so in Australia, I just don't think it has that much um, political resonance. Hillsong has has always been very careful not to to get too involved. I mean, it's its origins of Western Sydney. These always swing seats between Labor and Liberal. This is you go to a Hillsong church. Um, it is majority minority. It is, you know, there, there, are, there are people, you know, there's Indigenous people, Pacific Islands people, people from all over Asia and, and, and Africa and South America that, are at, that form the core of these churches. Um, so there just isn't any real overarching political um, view, view to them. And, and I don't think, I mean, while Scott Morrison, while his politics, I, I suspect, uh, his, his faith prob probably informs his values as a political leader, I just don't see him or anyone, particularly in Australian life, as, as overtly Pentecostal in their in their politics. If that makes sense, I mean, the, the litmus test that I always use is is what would hypothetical Prime Minister Peter Dutton have done differently to Scott Morrison, or what would John Howard have done differently? As all I see in Scott Morrison is someone who is the product of 20 years of a very particular path that the Liberal Party has gone down. And I see that much more influential in his politics than, than his Pentecostalism. And 
And, you know, for, for example, if we take another Pentecostal world leader, the former president of Tanzania, he was a hardcore Pentecostalism who brought that into all of his politics. And he believed that COVID was a spiritual sickness and that people needed to, to pray it out and cast out the demons. And he was prepared to die for it. And he did. He, he died of COVID last year while he was in office. And I just haven't seen any of these very Pentecostal ideas kind of informing anything in Australian politics. So I just don't think that there is um, culturally all that much resonance. Sure, people might might rock up to the church, but they're probably rocking up to a lot of other churches as well. Um, and, yeah, I just don't see it as especially influential. And, and another thing that, that I kind of use as a barometer is just look at how many stories you see in, in the Daily Telegraph and on A Current Affair about Hillsong. They're absolutely always going in, um, you know, really battering them about, about the money and, and, and the scandals and things like that. Um, so, so I think that culturally Hillsong is, is still not popular in Australia. It is still something that people are very suspicious of. So I, I don't think that there is at this point in time, a, a huge alignment between politics and Pentecostalism. But obviously, you know, all of, all of these things are open to change. I, I just don't see it at the moment. I think we have time for one, one more. Thank thanks. you. And thanks for a really interesting discussion. I'd like to um, know if when you had a look at the origins of um, the church, you had a look at the role of this um, scandalous evangelist, this Scottish-Australian John Alexander Dowie, who set up, you know, faith healing in Australia. He trained um, partly in Scotland and South Australia. He practised here and then set up the Free Christian Church. And Bethlehem was the title of the church in Victoria and basically got ousted because of a scandal and then set up Zion, the community in Illinois and... Um, he was very influential in terms of the religion that would seem and is sometimes attributed to being the founder of Pentecostalism. I'm, I'm interested in it because my great-great-grandmother was married to the head of the church in Victoria and he was a very scandalous person as well. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's great. He's, uh, I touch on him briefly in the book. I, I didn't get to write as much about him as I would have liked to. Um, but, but, yeah, he's uh, Adelaide's own, John Alexander Dowie. Uh, yeah, grew up in Scotland. And, and, yeah, when he went to America, he was involved um, in some of the circles that Amy Semple McPherson was. And, uh, yeah, Zion City was sort of set up as this uh, sort of Pentecostal utopia. And it was called, um, just have to get the exact quote here, uh, Zion City was called a carefully devised large-scale platform for securities fraud. Uh, so, so the town went, went bust pretty quickly and there were some, some really influential and pretty nasty um, early Pentecostal figures that were out there, including a very prominent flat earther who um, accused Charles Fox Parham of sodomy and, and brought about his downfall. But that's that's another thing. Um, and, and, yes, some disciples of Dowie... Uh, I believe, uh, also went out to South Africa and really helped found Pentecostalism there. And I have a chapter on South Africa in the book, and it, it's a very syncretic religion out there. It's very, um, looks and feels like local beliefs. And, and there's also sort of an African Zionist church that I believe has some connections to um, to the stuff that, that Dowie was preaching. Um, but, but yeah, thanks for bringing him up. He's, he's a super interesting character. And you've reminded me that I need to go back and, um, and maybe read and write a bit more on him because he's a, he's a fascinating figure. 
Well, I think we've had a glimpse this hour of just how little we should be satisfied with like a soundbite when it comes to Pentecostalism. This is a huge story, as I said at the outset. The characters, the places, the ideas, the political implications are absolutely enormous. L, it's been wonderful to have your company this hour. I've been enthralled. Your book goes even deeper. There's a whole world out there of kind of Pentecostal history for people who want to dive in. Um, but Beyond Belief is, is your book. It's just come out here in Australia. It's available over in the book tent. Congratulations on an epic, epic story. <laughs> It's a shame you can't be here to, to sign all those copy, but you can find Elle on Twitter. She has a website, of course, as well. My name's Meredith Lake. Thank you so much for joining this session, and I hope you have a great afternoon.